I don't know if you find dreams a particularly interesting point of conversation. Some people do. Some people find dreams very interesting. And they love to tell you all about the bizarre dream they had last night. Without wanting to embarrass her, my wife is one such person. I'm not so much, which leads to some interesting conversations first thing in the morning. But although I'm not particularly interested in dreams in general, occasionally I will have a particular dream, which is so disturbing or frightening that it will stick with me. The next day, the feeling that I had as I was having that dream will keep coming back to me. I don't know if you've had dreams like that. Some of the really disturbing ones will stay with me for years after I've had them. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a very disturbing dream. And it's disturbing because of the frightening creatures that he sees. But more so than this, it's disturbing because of the terrible kingdoms that these beasts represent. This is a prophecy from God, and it tells Daniel of something to come. And while this chapter gives us a tremendous amount to celebrate, it also gives us a lot to lament. And that's what we're going to do now as we take a look at these destructive kingdoms. That's our first thought for this evening. Take a look at verse 2 with me. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. In his uh, vision, Daniel sees four beasts, and they're coming up out of the sea. In the Bible, the sea is often used as a symbol of chaos, or of evil, or of destruction, and it's out of this chaos, out of this rebellion against God, that these four beasts arise. The first to emerge is a lion, and we're told that this lion has the wings of an eagle. And in a disturbing act, the wings of the lion are torn from its back, and it is stood up on its feet like a man. Daniel says it's given the mind of a man. And before Daniel can really start to process what he's seeing, another beast starts to rise up out of the sea. This time it, it's a bear we see in verse 5. This bear has recently killed. It has the ribs of its last victim still in its jaws, but it's not finished yet. It's told, arise, devour much flesh. This second beast has one simple goal, to kill and to keep killing. The next beast to emerge in verse 6 is a leopard. Now, leopards are powerful hunters. They can take down their prey at 40 miles an hour. And yet this leopard isn't constrained to ground attacks. It has four wings so that it can catch its prey wherever it goes. And trying to hide from this leopard is pointless because it has four heads in order to see in all directions at once. This beast is utterly inescapable, without a doubt the most fearsome of the three. But there is one more beast to come. Daniel wants us to know that this fourth beast is in a whole other category. Have a look at verse 7 with me. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed, but with this beast, Daniel doesn't paint quite as clear a picture for us. The beast described isn't described as an animal, almost as if putting it in terms of something that we can visualize like that wouldn't do justice to this beast. This creature is to be feared far more than a bear or a lion. So what does Daniel tell us about this beast? He tells us it's terrifying, it's dreadful, it's exceedingly strong, it has teeth of iron, this beast can tear through bone just as easily as flesh. And we're told that unlike the bear, it doesn't leave remains of its victims. Any bits of carcass that fall to the ground, it tramples with its feet, completely demolishing all life in its path. We're also told that this beast has ten horns. A horn being a biblical symbol of power. Ten horns suggesting incredible strength. And then finally, in verse 8, Daniel describes this bizarre turn of events where another horn raises up, uproots three of the others, and speaks great things. Now, after seeing these bizarre and terrifying creatures, the question that Daniel is left with is the same one that we're left with. What's the point? What's going on in all of this? What are these beasts? So Daniel asks an interpreter. The interpreter tells him that the four beasts represent four kingdoms and the ten horns represent ten kings. Now scholars have done their best to try and figure out who these four kingdoms are. Many think that the first beast, the lion, represents Babylon, which was the kingdom of the time. The, lab, uh, the lion being humbled and made to look like a man certainly uh, draws similarities to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and how he was humbled. The bear is often thought to be the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard, the Greek Empire, and many consider the final and most fearsome beast to be the Roman Empire, the most destructive of the four. Now, there may be some truth to this. These four beasts may well represent these four historical kingdoms, but that just can't be the full picture. For one, I don't think that we're actually meant to know the identity of these four beasts. Daniel certainly wasn't told. But secondly, this vision seems to take us right up until the end of the world. And as we're about to see, this fourth beast, the most disturbing of the four, seems to reign right up until the end. So the question that we're left with is, do these beasts solely represent a bunch of kingdoms that are long dead? Or rather, is the point of this vision to demonstrate to us a pattern that kingdoms will follow until the very end of the age? To show us what we can expect from human kingdoms that rise up out of the darkness. There will always be beasts on the throne, beasts that are hungry for more power, beasts that are willing to trample the people beneath them as they chase after their own glory and dominion, bringing death and destruction as they do so. We see it in our own age, don't we? We see it as we look to the horror and the death that has come from Putin's reign. We see it as we look to Afghanistan, where terrorists have taken control of the state and they're murdering those who used to serve the country. Beasts, 
in power, with sin and rebellion in their hearts, disregarding the good of their people in favour for their own glory and dominion. Some beasts will have a particular hatred for God and his kingdom. Remember that fourth beast with the ten horns and the horn that came up and spoke great things? Verse 25 tells us a bit more about this horn. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, that is the people of God, and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. This ruler will speak out against God. He will change or seek to change the times and the law, that is, the religious calendar and God's law, the fundamental ways in which God's people seek to worship him. And on top of all of this, we're told that God's people will be given into his hand. This ruler will prevail over the people of God. Now, in terms of the identity of this figure, lots of people try and match it up to a, a historical tyrant. Arguably more than that, think it represents the Antichrist. That is a powerful figure who will rise up to oppress God's people in the end times. But whoever it is, at the very least, we're seeing another pattern that emerges throughout human history. There will always be those in power who have a particular hatred for God and his kingdom. We see it in places today like North Korea and China, where governments are seeking to suppress God's people and try and stop them from worshipping. I don't know if you've heard this statistic, but it's estimated that in the last two years, authorities in China have shut down almost 7,000 Christian churches. Now, by God's grace, in our nation, we've been protected from this level of persecution. But even here, we're seeing things decline, aren't we? We're seeing teachers and politicians forced out of their jobs because they refuse to compromise on basic Christian principles, because they hold firm to the truth that God created us male and female and that this design is good. But because we're not being killed or imprisoned for our faith, we're quick to forget that our religious freedom, our Government-given right to worship God will never be a guarantee. There will be times in history where God will allow evil rulers to prevail over his people. Now, I don't know how you feel when you think about this. Or when you look out to the world and you see the destruction that the beasts of today are bringing. Maybe you can't bear to watch the news because every story is just doom and gloom. Or maybe you do, but you do so with anxiety as you see what's going on, as you see war progressing on our continent. As you see governments making decisions for you that you're just sure aren't for the good of anyone. Or as you hear thousands upon thousands of voices banding together in opposition to everything you believe. Maybe as you look out and see the beasts of the world, you're still shocked at how bad things have gotten in what is really such a short period of time. But God isn't. 
God isn't shocked at all. God knew the name of every single beast who would ever rule when he gave this vision to Daniel. He knew who they were. He knew every terrible act they would commit, every move away from his will that they would make. And he numbered the days that they would be in power. This leads us to our second thing to take away from this chapter, which will be a shorter one. Destroyed kingdoms. Destroyed kingdoms. Have a look at verse 9 with me. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Daniel beholds the Ancient of Days, God himself sat on his throne. The first thing Daniel notices about him is his clothes. They're white as snow, completely and utterly pure. Have you ever gone out in the winter and seen maybe an open field or a park just completely blanketed in snow? And on those strange winter days where the sun is still shining, it's light radiates off the snow and it can blind you. That's something of what Daniel experiences as he beholds the radiance of God's goodness and his purity. He says his hair is like pure wool, again, white and pure. White hair also being symbolic of the wisdom that comes with age. The ancient of days, having existed before time itself, has unparalleled wisdom. And Daniel says he is sat on a throne of flames with a stream of fire flowing out before him, verse 10. This is imagery of his judgment. He is sat on his judgment throne and the powerful, righteous fire of his judgment flows out before him. The books are opened and court is in session. Now, I would have thought that with all of this going on, Daniel would be unable to take his eyes off of it. But he's distracted. That new horn, that great evil ruler, is still speaking words against God. Look at verse 11. I looked then because of the the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burnt with fire. There's a phenomenon in film and TV of significant characters receiving unsatisfying deaths. The most famous instance of this, and I hope this isn't too big of a spoiler for anyone, is the character of Boba Fett in the original Star Wars trilogy, which, as a side note, is the only one worth watching, but that's another conversation. Boba Fett was this fearsome mysterious bounty hunter who was kind of built up in the first two films to be this big foil to the plot of the heroes. And yet in the final film of the trilogy, there is this big crowded battle scene, loads going on. And in the space of about five seconds, Boba Fett is accidentally knocked into a pit and he dies. 
And fans, to this day, are still confused by this. Here was this mysterious, enigmatic villain who was supposed to cause such a problem for the heroes. And yet, there, in the space of about five seconds, he's gone. So quick that you might miss it. And that's what we see here with this horn in Daniel 7. This king, this ruler, who has such a hatred for God's people and who will cause them such suffering. And yet he's brought before the ancient of days. And like that, he's silenced and he's thrown to the fire. Now, while this is speaking of the particular judgment of a particular individual, we know that every human kingdom that is working against God's good purposes will meet this same end. God has numbered their days in power, and when they reach the final day, the books will be opened, their dominion will be taken from them, and they will be thrown to the fire. Whether they're rulers who explicitly hate God and persecute his people, or whether they're a kingdom like our own, labeled as Christian, but yet promotes, permits, celebrates things that are detestable to God and call it freedom, sexual immorality, the rejection of God's good design for men and women, the slaughter of hundreds upon thousands of human lives that God is carefully, lovingly knitting together in the womb. The powers, the people who permit and celebrate these things will stand before the Ancient of Days and they will receive the judgment they're due. So don't fear these kingdoms. Don't be anxious or overwhelmed by them as you witness the evil they carry out. Certainly don't put your hope in them. They will not last. Like every kingdom before them, God will take their dominion away and he'll give it to a far better king. And that leads us to our final thought for the evening. An everlasting kingdom. An everlasting kingdom. The final thing that Daniel sees in his vision is one like a son of man. And to him, verse 14, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if this came as a shock to Daniel. Daniel has just seen the horror, the evil, the destruction that comes when human kings are sat on the throne. And yet here is the Ancient of Days handing the everlasting kingdom to a son of man, to a human. A human king will sit on the throne forever. Now, of course, we know who this son of man is. There are some clues for us here in the passage. We're told that the son of man was with the clouds of heaven, and his dominion is described almost identically to the de description of God's dominion back in chapter four. 
But most importantly, we have four Gospels that are absolutely full of the Lord Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. And the thing that the first readers of Daniel chapter 7 would have struggled to get their heads around is the fact that this man, this human being, who would rule forever, was in fact God himself in human form. One day the very essence of God would be seen in human flesh. Every characteristic that Daniel beheld as he looked upon the Ancient of Days would be seen fully and completely in the person of the Lord Jesus. His purity, his righteousness, his power, his authority, his wisdom. But we can only imagine the fears that people must have had as they read this vision. Another human king who would bring death and destruction trampling his people underfoot as he relished his own power and glory. But this could not be further from the king that the Lord Jesus proved himself to be. Jesus famously summarized his earthly mission in this way. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't a king who will destroy his people for his own sake. This is a king who will destroy himself for the sake of his people. Jesus wouldn't bring death to his people, he would take death from them, the death that they had earned for themselves, for their sin, the judgment of God that they rightly deserved. He would take that death and that judgment from them and he bore it himself on their behalf. He took off his kingly robes, which were white as snow, and he took their filthy rags, which were black as night, and he faced death on their behalf. And then he rose to life on their behalf, defeating death once and for all and bringing life to his people. And that's what Jesus' kingdom is. It's life. It's life with him. Life eternal. Life with him which he freely gives to his people. Did you see that in verse 18? But the saints of the Most High, the people of God, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The Lord Jesus has earned the kingdom. He has earned the glory and the splendor, but yet he doesn't think to hold it for himself. He freely gives it to his people that they might share in the glory of the kingdom with the king. Is this a kingdom that you want to be a part of? Is this a king that you want to lead you? The kings of the earth will always fail you, but Jesus offers you a kingdom that will never fail. He offers you a hope that can never be taken from you. 
And he offers you life with a king who has done more for you than you could possibly imagine. So don't fear the beasts of this age. There will always be another Nebuchadnezzar on the throne telling you to bow to their statue. Don't bow. There will always be another Darius telling you that they're the one worthy of your worship, not God. But they're not. They're not worthy of our worship. They're not worthy of our fear. Only God is. Their dominion will last only a moment. But God is still in control. The Lord Jesus is still on the throne. And his kingdom will last forever. Let's pray.